Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors uh, is with me in studio. Good morning to you, John. I, I was going to say to you that a little later on in the programme we'll be speaking about that uh, issue of no increase in the number of personal injury cases coming before the courts and, of course, lots of blame uh, going to your own uh, profession. Indeed. Are you used to that, are you? you oh, you're, yeah. You come across as the bad yeah. guys and all. Yeah, but you see, it's it's always interesting because that that one raises a lot of kind of debate, depending which side of the equation you're on. And I mean, by and large, you see, we're representing people who have been involved in accidents. And, you know, I mean, if you're trying to persuade somebody who's had a serious injury that, you know, they shouldn't really be taking a claim and there's no basis for a claim... um, and I remember when that swinging swing case came out, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, it was fairly kind of uh, not unexpected, let's say, that it was used as a kind of political football against mm. this lady or maybe a political swing, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the difficulty that I have with it is that I haven't seen premiums come down despite yeah. all the changes we've had over the last... And it's been going on now for a long time. It's, I mean, you're 15 or 20 years having a go at changing the system and saying the system is bad. But if there was any really genuine kind of belief that there should be a change in the system, you should be looking to change the system in, in all its aspects. Mm. So, I mean, the primary guys who determine what and how premiums are calculated are actuaries. And these actuaries uh, for insurance companies, but I mean, they also, I mean, let's not be naive about it, they're concerned with only one thing, and that's profit. profit of course, and yeah. if there were, if, if it was as simple as saying, let's just change the number of claims, let's just reduce the amount of awards, then you would have, because of the introduction of PIAB, which has had an impact, you would then have an impact on mm. premiums, but there hasn't been any impact on premiums. Not at all. Fact, and, and the payouts are down 20 Three percent, I think, yeah. or something like yeah. that. You know, mm. you didn't see the piece, Pierre Stoherty piece, did you, at mm. the Oireachtas Committee, where mm. he he just took them apart. I mean, yeah. he mm. literally took them apart because they were making the point about fraudulent claims, and yeah. when it turned out, and they put a figure on it, like crazy figures, like mm. thousands, mm. and then when it came to what they brought to the Gardaí, it was nineteen. Mm. And well, exactly, yeah. and I mean, yeah. you're talking about looking at a small minority of people. I mean, we live in the real world. Mm. You're always going to have a minority of people who will take claims, who shouldn't take claims. And we've introduced legislation that says that if it's proven, well, it's fact it's always been there. If there were fraudulent claims, they'd be prosecuted. Mm. And I mean, the amount of times... That but they don't tend to get prosecuted, even if it's thrown out of court. Like They don't. But if there's penalties, which there are, for bringing a case that you shouldn't have brought, i.e. that you're losing costs, ultimately it's going to have an impact. Mm. Interesting. And that's all you can do, really, you know. But anyway, that's the end of my hobby horse. In, indeed. You're going to talk to us about some cases, John. Well, yeah, an interesting one. Actually, following on from what we were talking about, I got distracted this morning reading it. And the only reason I got distracted, well, uh, probably not the only reason, but one of the reasons I got distracted reading it was that it was involved a cyclist. And as you know, I like to cycle my pushback around. Indeed you do. Actually, I was up in, uh, two things that struck me. I was up in, is it Baranur? up in the, around Killinall on my bicycle on Sunday and I was cycling around and I was thinking what a lovely part of the county and I'm I'm so happy that I do do a bit of cycling because you can see quite a, a lot yeah. of the county when you do that but one of the this case that 
that caught my attention this morning. Now, it's just 80 pages of a case, so I didn't read it all. It involved a cyclist. And what it involved was, and I remember it, and it's something that you're often wary of when you're on a bike, and that is cattle grids or grids of any description. If you're coming over railway tracks and you've got the railway tracks and you're, you're traversing them, if you know what I mean, mm. they're a danger. If you're cycling up, you go up to Powers the Pot, for example, you go over the top of Powers the Pot, I haven't done it yet this year, but anyway, if you go up over the top of Powers the Pot, there's a cattle grid there, and you're always wary about cattle grids for all sorts of reasons when you're on a pushback. If you hit them the wrong way, you can have a fairly nasty fall. And the thing to remember about when you're on a pushback is that it's not that easy to get off it. What I mean is you're usually cleated into the pedals, so it can be difficult to... There's often that thought as you're trying to uncleat coming to traffic lights that you mightn't and you could end up on your on your side or your head or whatever. But at all, it reminds me of the first cycle trip that I did. I really am digressing this morning, but it reminds me of the first big cycle trick I, trip I did. I did the Camino, and one of the guys that was with us, we decided we came up the first hill. It was snowing, and when we were coming down the hill, as you can imagine, it was really cold. So when we were coming towards the bottom of the hill, I shouted to the guy behind me. I said, "Listen, let's go in for a cup of tea and try and dry off here because we were so wet." And there was a fellow in front of us. And we shouted out to him that we were going into the coffee place that we saw. And he forgot that he was cleated and he'd been just on the bike. And he went to turn and stop and fell straight like it was like something in a cartoon. He went right over on the bike. But anyway, this particular accident that we're talking about Mm. involved a couple of interesting legal features. Because first of all, it involved a cattle grid on a public road. And the public road had previously been owned by Shannon Development, which was a private company, well, it's kind of semi-private company. And that road had been taken over by the local authority. So <coughs> this guy was cycling his bicycle, which he, he had retired. And as the judge described at one stage, he didn't fall into the classification of boy racer uh, because he had just retired. Mm. So they kind of gave you the picture of an old fellow sitting on a bike going along at a very slow speed. But anyway, um, <clears throat> he literally came onto the cattle road and there was a dip on one side of it. And he came down, uh, hit the the cattle grid unevenly, came off the bike, couldn't uncleat fast enough and did a, a lot of damage to his ankle. Damage to the extent that I think he got an award of about 80,000 for the injury, which indicates the significance of the injury, if you know what I mean. But um, it raised a couple of interesting legal questions. First of all, <clears throat> they sued, he sued the local authority and he sued them in negligence, firstly, and nuisance, secondly. Now, <clears throat> and I know this is probably a long cry from what you asked me initially when you were talking about people taking fraudulent claims, but to a certain extent, you might be an anti-cyclist and say, you know, like a fellow got over a cat grid, why should he succeed? <clears throat> and it was some, it's somewhat similar to somebody taking on a pastime. And you may remember the case in Wicklow of the person traversing, going across the Wicklow Mountains. Do you remember that? And they were jogging along well. yeah. and they tripped over a, a kind of a, an elevated plank, I'll call it, mm. and succeeded in the circuit court and lost in the high court. But anyway, I was, so I was interested to read this judgment. 
for the reason that I was wondering what the outcome would be. Mm. Well, I knew what the outcome was, to be fair, because I had the summary before I read the case. But um, his basic legal argument was, number one, negligence, which is our bog-standard argument that you make in most cases. Negligence being the principle that if you're a good neighbour, you wouldn't do that kind mm. of thing, if you know what I mean. And the second one is nuisance. And nuisance is a, a less common one. And nuisance is what it sounds like sometimes, you know, somebody making nuisance in themselves. So public nuisance is kind of a very public case of somebody making nuisance of themselves, if you know what I mean, or rather a public body making nuisance of themselves. So the the legal argument, and there was the, also the complexity of the fact that this cattle grid had been put in there, I think in... 2000 or something like that, so, or maybe even 20 years previously, so it had, been, it had been put in, I'm going to say that 2000 is hardly 20 years but it is, but anyway, it was 20 years previously that they put the cattle grid in so from as a lawyer you're looking at it and you're going, okay, right, what have I to deal with there, what are the issues that you're dealing with and, you know, the old the, the one that we're all very familiar which is, you're cycling down the road and you're going to a pothole, what mm. happens there and it's often a question that we're often asked, you know, what happens if I cycle into a pothole and is, is it as simple as saying that, well, if, if you cycle into a pothole you don't have a case and <clears throat> the reason or the interesting legal element to this is that when you're dealing with something like this, where it's a local authority you're dealing with a very old principle called misfeasance and non-feasance. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the Latin, but it comes from the Latin verb of to do or not to do. It sounds like Shakespeare, but anyway, uh, it comes from facio, to make. So it's misfeasance or non-feasance. So misfeasance is where the local authority does something and does it badly. non non-feasance is where they don't do it at all. So what I mean by that is that if you're looking at a pothole that arises by reason of the fact that they don't do anything about the road and never repair it, one might wonder why local authorities don't repair roads and this may not be one of the reasons. But obviously, if you don't repair the road at all and it gets into disrepair and you'd, you'd cycle or drive into your pothole, you're in difficulty because that's a case of non-feasance. They haven't done anything haven't at done all. Anything. Like. Yeah. So the case of misfeasance now is the case where, let's say they come along and fill in the pothole and fill it in badly. And in those circumstances, they did a bad job of it. So in, in those circumstances, you have a case or an action against them. But what what was interesting here was, and it's one that will commonly occur when you're talking about local authorities and local authority type accidents, is that if they did something initially, which was done so badly, if you like, or done badly, or done negligently, or done in a way that wouldn't be consistent with good practice or good standards, that in those circumstances they're also guilty of misfeasance or could be guilty of misfeasance, depending on, on the facts of the case. So what have we in this particular case? Our friend cycled over, retiree cycled over with his brand new bike that his kids bought him, which I think came out in the church when the kids bought him the bike, I'm just trying to tell him something. <laughs> I'm just thinking to my kids, don't buy me a bike. I'll yeah, really have one. Yeah. I don't want to. Same as But them. anyway, um, you don't want one. I don't want one anyway. <laughs> just in case they're listening. Yeah. Oh, we might do another uh, bidding thing on a bike and get you a bike. Uh, Indeed. So they, they got him the bike. There he's toddling He got him on. the bike. He fell. Mm. Sued the local authority. 
And the, so the first question was, was it negligence? Yeah. And the answer that the court gave was it was. And the reason that it was negligence was because the there was a lip around the grid that should never have been put there in the first place. So it was a little bit like, you know those ramps that you come across on the road, mm. the speed ramps? Mm. Speed, so that people are, you slow people down. So this appeared to have been put there for some reason unknown to the local authority because obviously the local authority inherited the problem from Shannon. Mm. And that's the point it was going to make to you. Surely that was their argument. That, it that was, was the next argument. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. that, was, that was the next argument, Fran, and that's exactly what they argued. They said, well nothing to do with me I didn't put it there mm. well the answer was tough you actually took it over from right. Shannon and therefore you took on the responsibility of it. the other interesting one of it on it was or the other interesting thing of the case was he held it to be a public nuisance now which is an interesting one because it came up before in a case that I commented on in Dublin which I, I have the mental picture of it of this fella who was known in, I think in the judgment, the judge used to say that, or sorry, the judge said that he was, again, a retired individual, used to work in the Navy, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but something like that, military or Navy, and liked his sup, liked to go down for the pint every day. And he went down in some part of Dublin, he was walking along the Lewis Line, not the Lewis Line so much as under the Lewis Line, one of these, you know... Bridges mm. and he passed and he fell over and a protrudence, uh, a block protruding out. He fell over it and in falling over it, the court held that it was public nuisance. So likewise in this case, the fact that there was a hazard there on the public road, the the judge held it to be a public nuisance and therefore mm. he succeeded on the public nuisance. The final bit of it that is worth noting is that the judge actually also held that he was negligent in his own right. So in other words, that he had what we call contributory negligence. He contributed to the accident by not paying sufficient care in all of the circumstances and all attention. So he attributed, I'm not, I can't remember precisely what the percentage was. I think it was might have been 20 or 25%. So he attributed 25%. So he reduced the award by 25%. Uh, Making the point that if the man saw the cattle grid, he should have got off the bike and... Interesting, yeah. The argument that the council were making was not only should he got off the bike, but that there was a gateway at the side of the cattle grid that he could have gone through and funny it brings it why what what resonated with me is that I often go on a cycle if I go on a short cycle for a little bit of exercise to clear the head I'll often loop around and come out by the school there out on what's the school out Rackeven mm. often come along by Rackeven school and when you come out on the care road out there. on the care yeah. road mm. when you when you come in along there by the school you come in at the back of the nursing home mm. and to do that there's a kind of a narrow little gap that I come through and I was just thinking to myself, I wonder, I wonder, you know, and it's quite dodgy enough that you do that. But in this case, they said he should have done that. But the evidence was, and again, like everything else, everything to do with the case as presented on the day, mm. how the judge views it and how the judge views all the aspects of the case. But in that case, no pun intended, they said that he couldn't have seen the gateway because it was obstructed and therefore he couldn't mm. have gone through it, so they didn't go with that. Yeah, it, it, and I know it's all a mindset and, and no reflection on the gentleman in question, but if, if I fell off a bicycle 
and, and it's only a personal thing, uh, due to my own stupidity of trying to cross a cattle grid, I, I'd be so ashamed of it. I, I wouldn't tell anybody. You it's know? funny, you know, quite often people who fall like that. Well, if you broke your ankle in four places, you might have no choice but to tell people. Mm. But, uh, yeah, no, it's funny. It's interesting because, I mean, I've had... I've had a couple of falls off the bike. And yeah. I, I had one where I came out over, did a, a, a it was, again, I am in one of these humours this morning, but it was an interesting one insofar as when I came around the bend, I went over the car and uh, one, of the, one of the local comedians about two weeks later was, I happened to come into a party situa- situation and he was reciting the story and he was saying that the poor individual in the car was quite traumatised by the fact that that they were involved in a collision with a cyclist and the cyclist came straight over out over the top of the car and landed in the ditch and were even more traumatised when they found out who was <laughs> in the solicitor. ditch. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Let me take a break. We're back with John in a moment. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors uh, still with us um, after the trauma (laughs) of all those traumas. You're going to look at another case. Yeah, well, there's been a couple of really interesting cases about making wills. And this is a kind of a very common theme that we have, that people should make wills. And... I'm often asked the question, you know, do you need a solicitor to make a will? And I suppose you don't need a solicitor to make a will as long as you follow the rules of making the will. Um, but th- th- there was two cases that can, I'll just, I'll, without kind of going into the precise details of them, I'll be, I'll be general about them. But there are two cases on making a will and making a will in a way that, if you like, doesn't necessarily have the desired result, uh, even though you might, you know, you may have evidence that would say that it should. So let's be particular about it, or let's be specific about it. There was a will made by this gentleman, and let's say uh, th- what he did was he made the will and he said, I'm leaving my farm to Johnny. <clears throat> and he said, I'm leaving my farm and all farm machinery to Johnny and that's what the will said and then I'm leaving everything else to Mikey or Mary or whatever whatever to somebody else I'm leaving everything else to somebody else kind of thing so the evidence that was given by the solicitor who made the will the evidence that he actually gave the court was he said that in my view he meant to give the one he had two plots of ground. He had a one farm and an out, another farm, if you know, two separate little mm. bits of ground. And he said, I think he meant to give one to Johnny and the other one to Mikey, so, or Mary, we'll say. So the, the, the evidence that was being offered to the court was that this is what he intended to do, right? So... You might say to yourself, well, right, OK, well, the law is all about evidence. And if you produce the evidence, surely to God, the result should be that whatever the intention of the executor of the person who made the will mm. should come through. The answer is no, because under the relevant, I say relevant because I think it's section 95, but somebody might correct me, so I won't say it's 95. But under the Succession Act, there's a rule 
about introducing what we call extrinsic evidence. In other words, evidence other than what's on the paper that the will is written, i.e. the will itself. So, and what the rule says is that unless you cannot introduce outside evidence or other evidence about what's on the page, unless what's on the page is in some way contradictory. So in other words, unless there's some misunderstanding within the will, Mm. you can't. Now that's putting it at its very simplest. Mm. Mm. And in this particular case, despite the evidence of the solicitor who made the will saying that he actually didn't think that what was on the will was right, the court said, well, unfortunately, under the section, we can't introduce this outside evidence. And then the second case that I looked at was a case which would be a kind of a fairly obvious example of it. Uh, And it was, I leave it to my brother's daughter, Mary. I leave such and such a thing to my brother's daughter, Mary. Turns out that the brother doesn't have a, a daughter called Mary. Mary's actually Elizabeth. So the issue there was that that was a clear case of where the court said, well, actually, there is a contradiction on the face of the will. And under those circumstances, we can introduce the evidence. So they were then able to introduce evidence to say that Elizabeth was a very much of a favoured niece by the deceased. And therefore, but like, it's a really interesting kind of where you can get caught with the technicality of the Succession Act, which brings me full circle back to why sometimes it might be more advisable to make a will. Because the will is the premier piece of... Yes, it's the principal document that you're working on. But, like, the other one that, that, that is, if you like, indicative, and it sounds like I'm trying to prove a case where here, which I probably am, but there you go. Well, the other one which was interesting was where the... The will was, the the deceased uh, made a will. Obviously not when he was deceased, but anyway, he made the will. He didn't come back to make it, but he made the will. And he made the will at a time that he was very ill, which is not an uncommon situation. He also, he also made the will in circumstances where, if you like, which would kind of give you reason to pause and wonder what's going on here kind of thing, which by the way, isn't the basis for taking a case Mm. that things mightn't look exactly right. And in this particular case, the brothers, siblings, the brothers and sisters of the deceased, he was a bachelor. They took this case trying to contest the will and they were contesting the will for the two very common ones. Number one, he wasn't able to make it. Number two, uh, he was being influenced by members of the family, which is a difficult one because, you know, how, how where's the line between trying to help the poor man and, and overhelping him, him, if yeah. you know what I mean. So in that particular case, lost it in the circuit court. In other words, the circuit court found that the individual, the, the deceased, the man who made the will, wasn't capable of making the will and that there was undue influence. So they appealed it to the high court and the high court reversed the circuit court and said, no, don't agree with you. There wasn't a case of an undue influence here. I'm not satisfied on the evidence that there was undue influence, number one. And number two, I'm not satisfied that he wasn't able to make the will. Now, what and why, you might ask, was the case taken? And the reason that the case might have been taken, and I'm only surmising this, but the reason that the case might have been taken was that a solicitor came to the hospital 
So, okay, two solicitors came to the hospital, not in the same time or the same day. One came, let's say, on Friday, and then the following Friday, a second solicitor came. The second solicitor made the will. The first solicitor didn't make the will. The second solicitor, uh, in making the will, uh, decided that he was capable of making the will. And the first solicitor gave evidence that he was totally incapable of making the will. So, and the other interesting one, if you like, that, or the other point that would make people stop and say, well, what's going on here was that the second solicitor was not the family solicitor. So, in other words, he didn't know the deceased at all. Right. Whereas the first solicitor did know and was his solicitor for quite a number of years. So, so you can well understand in those circumstances why the, the person, if you like, who wasn't the beneficiary or the, ultimately mm. it might be suspicious. Of course, yeah. But the, the saving grace of it, if that's the right term to use, but the, the saver, if you like, from the point of view of the judge deciding that the second will was valid, was that the second solicitor arrived in with a very detailed checklist for the deceased. So in other words, he arrived in and took a very detailed attendance, what we call attendance, so he took very detailed notes and he had a whole series of questions that he asked the deceased all of which he answered and... And that determined capacity was Exactly, yeah. that determined capacity but the thing about it was that the other side then pointed out that in fact he got two things wrong in other words, that actually he didn't have capacity because he didn't answer all the questions right. But the judge said, oh, well, look, come on. Like, he got most of it right. And who's going to be precisely correct on all the details? He also took the view that there wasn't any real evidence of undue influence insofar as, you know, they're, they're, mm. you know, they were arguing that, you know, they blocked off members of the family and all that. So he... he so the will stood? So the will stood. So Interesting, will stood. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale, though, it is. in terms of people making wills, too. Yeah, there was another one, and it's very quickly, I'll just tell you what it was about. There was another one which had to do with another issue that arises, which is the responsibility of the executor. Sometimes people ask me, well, how, you know, how big a job has it been an executor? Well, sometimes it can be a big job. Mm. In this particular case, the court removed one of the executors and the court has jurisdiction to remove an executor. And why, in this particular case, the reason that they removed the executor was the executor, it was a, it was a, a strange situation. Not strange, sorry, there's nothing strange in this world. Truth is strange in fiction, they say. But in this scenario, it was a, not an uncommon situation in that the parties were separated. And the husband made the will, but actually included the separated wife, who was still a wife because they had never formalised anything, mm. which, of course, raises a whole load of other questions sure, that you're talking yeah. about. But he actually included her in the will, but gave her life interest only in the house. And she decided to exercise what we call her legal right share. So she decided to take the family home instead of her, what she got under the will, which she's entitled to do. But in doing that then raised the whole, she was being, if you like, obstructed and opposed by the executor who was her daughter and she was opposing her application. And she she got the daughter removed 
on the basis that the daughter, and again, the evidence came out mm. that there was loans given by the poor man who died, the father. He gave loans, checks of 70,000 and 20,000 and 30,000 just before he died and nominated her as executor. So the, as you can imagine, the court said, well, wait a second here, you can't be a judge in your own court. You can't be an executor. Mm because you have a responsibility to investigate whether in fact that was a gift or whether it should come back right. into the estate. So she wasn't in a position, obviously, she to, to, to do that. She wasn't in the best position. Or yeah. best uh, somebody wants to know um, the age to make a will. I mean, the bottom end of it. Have you to be over 18? or what? Yeah, you can. Well, do you have to? Can you make a, can you make a will at any age? That's mm. a very good question. Interesting one. Uh, I would imagine you would have testamentary capacity at any stage, but the question is, would you have testamentary capacity? I mean, I'm not being flippant when I say that obviously if somebody is 17 and they have assets... Um, yeah, that might have a trust fund or something. I, I'll hold that, yeah. hold that right. one. I'll check it. I'll check it. That's a very good question. All right, thanks, John. Great to see you as always, John Lynch. There from uh, Lynch Solicitors.